All right, you guys may be seated. If you have any kids, you can send them off to Kid City, and we're going to begin momentarily. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. Usually it's a little less crowded in here after we send the kids off, so it's, it's nice to see some more adults. Um, even though I'm used to talking to kids probably more than I am to adults these days, but uh, nonetheless we'll do our best this morning. Um, thank you guys for, for coming. Uh, if you haven't been with us for a little while, or um, uh, maybe just a refresher, we are actually studying through the books of the Minor Prophets. Um, there are 12 books that currently um, that we're going through. We've gone through three thus far. We've gone through Jonah, uh, Joel, and Obadiah. And uh, so now we're going to begin a new one this morning. And uh, each book you'll see has a kind of a similar um, idea or mindset behind it where there's a lot of uh, proclamations of judgment upon uh, the nation of Israel, uh, either the southern or northern kingdoms of Israel or Judah or surrounding nations. Uh, but within each of them, they are unique and they, they do kind of give us a, a wonderful glimpse of the character of God if we, if we know where to look and how to dig through these books. And so uh, this morning we're beginning a new book. Um, a guy who is famous for his uh, bagged cookies. We're going to be in the book of Amos. Famous Amos cookies. Kind of went over all your guys' heads. I grew up on those things. I loved them. Uh, but th- this guy didn't make cookies. He was a, a prophet. <laughs> uh, so the book of Amos. Uh, we're going to be looking through uh, the first portion of chapter 1 this morning. Uh, now there are some 85 prophets named throughout the entire Bible. Uh, of course not all of these have given their own books. They're, not, you know, they're just throughout scripture. But uh, they all still serve the calling of God to speak the words of the Lord to the nations that he called them to speak to. Um, but what exactly did prophets do? We kind of went over this as we began this series in Jonah a couple months ago, but it's good to get a refresher. What, what was the purpose of a prophet? Uh, throughout scripture, we find really four main purposes behind the prophets. Number one is that they were used to reveal the nature and attributes of God. And so we see this actually several times with Moses, who was a prophet to the nation of Israel early on. We see that he, re- through Moses and his proclamations, we see that he revealed the character and attributes of God to the people of Israel, but also to the Egyptians early on in his ministry. Number two, prophets were used to reveal the law of God, right? What, what God's demands were, what his expectations were of his people. Oftentimes they were just reminding of the uh, laws that were set in place uh, in, in earlier times. Number three, prophets were used to call people back to repentance and to return to God. And so many times throughout scripture we see that the Israelites constantly are drawing away from God. They tend to uh, find themselves worshiping uh, false gods such as Baal throughout their, their course of history. Um, and, this, and these prophets were called to uh, bring them back to repentance and back to God. And number four, lastly, prophets would bring warning of God's coming judgment upon a rebellious people. So this is really the main reason why these prophets oftentimes weren't really well liked among their peers. is because they were bringing harsh words of judgment to them for the way that they were living. And uh, so sometimes they were even killed uh, for the words that God had them speak to the people. 
But nonetheless, you'll see that as you read through the prophets, um, you'll see typically one or more of these uh, these purposes for each prophet. Uh, and it's important to remember the purposes that they are called to because those purposes will find wisdom uh, in the words for us this morning. So Amos chapter 1, uh, before we begin, I'd just like to open up with a word of prayer as we begin to study the word of God. Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for this time. Lord, I just ask that you'd reveal yourself to us, the truth that is found here in the book of Amos this morning, and that we would find uh, ways to apply it to our lives today. Uh, we just thank you for this opportunity once more. In your name we pray. Amen. So Amos chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Now, interestingly, the name of Amos means burden or burden bearer. Uh, oftentimes, in culture of ancient Near East, uh, parents would name their child based upon something that happened or took place in their life around the time frame of the child being born. Uh, a good example of this is the namings of the uh, twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. We talked a little bit about them last week. Uh, Esau was born first, and he had a bunch of hair on his body, and they named him Esau, which means hairy. And, uh, and Jacob was born second, and he grabbed the heel of his brother as he came out. And so um, the word uh, Jacob comes from the Hebrew wor- root word, excuse me, meaning to follow or to be behind. It also means to supplant, to circumvent, to assail, or to overreach, which we see in the story of Jacob as he takes the birthright from his brother Esau. Now, they, why they called Amos burden, we don't really know. We aren't sure of the exact situation that took place. It could have been during a time of burden for the nation of Israel as a whole, or perhaps more specifically to his immediate family. Perhaps it's due out of pregnancy. For those who have been pregnant before, probably know that it can be burdensome to be pregnant. I don't know by experience, but uh, I've heard it is. it can be burdensome at times. But regardless of the situation, he was named Amos nonetheless. And so as this prophetic book unfolds, we get a bit more insight or more information about the prophet's background. In verse 1 here, he identifies... Uh, Amos as a shepherd, or some versions will say sheep breeder, in the town of Tekoa. Uh, Tekoa was a town of Judah. It was roughly six miles south of Bethlehem and ten miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, It's located in the Judean wilderness, and if you know anything about the Judean wilderness, uh, it is extremely rugged and it's extremely barren. So it's really remarkable, and I imagine very difficult to be a shepherd in such a desolate location. Because as a shepherd, you need uh, a bunch of grass and green areas and pastures to feed your sheep. But if you're from that area and had that vocation, in one sense, you were somewhat looked down upon among your peers. They would have been in the and essentially back then, Amos would have been considered as a country bumpkin to the civilized societies of Jerusalem. Uh, he's likely to have been pretty rough around the edges, uh, unrefined as it were. Uh, in chapter 7 of Amos, in verse 14, it also reveals a little bit more to his background. It tells us that Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So not only was he a shepherd in the Judean wilderness, he was also a tender or a dresser of fig trees. So he picked figs as well on the side. So Amos was essentially this bivocational um, farmer and, and sheep herder 
And uh, so basically his background, when he was called by God, was, was something that was unfamiliar to, <laughs> to him. He was called to be a prophet. He has no background in, in prophet school, or his parents weren't prophets. He was just a simple person doing a, really a difficult but simple job, and uh, God had a different calling upon his life. And really, I find this, the story of Amos's background to be incredibly encouraging uh, this morning, and I hope that you do as well, because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, chapters 27, that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And so maybe at times in your own life, you might feel inadequate. There's some, some feelings of inadequacy may arise in your life, either in your, in your job or what God calls you to do. Uh, maybe you're not the most educated or the most eloquent and you think to yourself, I don't have it all together. Uh, I don't think any of us have it all together. So you can be encouraged in that. You're not alone. And I think it's okay to, 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 to feel that way. I believe it's really, truly okay. The Bible tells us that God uses those who are weak in the eyes of the world. God looks at the heart of a person and not the outward appearance as it's seen by the world. So God wants, what God is really looking for is humble, willing, obedient hearts. And God can use the humble and the weak because if anything is done in our lives, then he gets the glory, right? His glory is revealed through those who are weak. Now looking at Amos himself, I don't think anyone really would have selected him to be a prophet to the nation of Israel, but God did. As a former pastor of mine once said, he said, never underestimate what God can do through a life that is yielded to him. And a man by the name of Hudson Taylor, he was the founder of the China Inland Mission, he also said this in regards to to what we're talking about. He said, depend on it. God's work is done in God's way, or God's work done in God's way will never lack supplies. All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. God uses men and women who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. And honestly, guys, I pray that we would be men and women who would lean on God. Right? Looking to God and, and making ourselves available to him. Not looking at what we don't have. Because let's be honest, we, we, can't, we can always find something that we're lacking when we examine ourselves and the calling that God puts on our lives, right? We can always say, well, God, I'm not really good at that, so I, I don't think I should do that. We can always look inwardly and see inadequacies in our own life and make excuses when God calls us. But rather looking at, what we, looking at that, we should be looking at what we do have in Christ because that makes all the difference in the world, right? What we do have in Christ is more than enough to do what he has called us to do. Now we also come to find in the very beginning of the book the timing of Amos's ministry. Right? Verse 1 says he prophesied in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and Jeroboam, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now we're not really sure what earthquake this is, uh, but it had a large impact on its society and culture because it's talked about three generations past this time, point, um, time frame. So it was a major earthquake that affected the, the area. But at this point in history, the nation of Israel is divided. There was formerly 12 tribes together, and when Solomon was reigning uh, over them, there were still 12 tribes. But when he died, his son Rehoboam took place, and he made certain demands of the people that the nation then divided. And so 10 tribes went to the north, known as Israel, and two stayed in the south, in the capital of Jerusalem, that's referred to as Judah. And during the reigns of these particular kings, um, Uzziah and Jeroboam, the nations actually did very well for themselves, um, even though they were divided. 
For a period of time, each nation was actually expanding their borders. So they were actually growing uh, in size. Judah pushed to the west in Philistia and east to, uh, into the Ammonite territory and south into Edom. And Israel in the north claimed portions of Syrian territory in the north and the east. So Judah and Israel, they grew um, prosperous and were militarily powerful during this time. But due to their military conquest and dominance, they rested their faith in well-fortified cities. And so the nation on the outside seemed secure from any potential attack from their enemies. But the time in which Amos prophesied was different than the time that Joel prophesied. If you remember, uh, Joel, he was prophesying uh, in the midst, or while he was prophesying, the nation was in the midst of a great plague of uh, locusts. If you recall back, this was uh, probably about a month ago we talked about the book of Joel. And so they were going through a very difficult time. They were uh, completely wiped out by this plague as far as their crops go. And so they had nothing left. Um, but when Amos is prophesying, the nation wasn't in the midst of a plague, but really in a time of prosperity. Um, now, religiously speaking, the people were engaged in regular services in the area of Bethel, Gilgal, and Dan. In the northern kingdom, the, they worshipped the calf. The worship of the calf was instituted by Jeroboam and had been well established in these areas. They also worshipped the pagan god Baal and had adopted some of the pagan practices of the Canaanites. Even after God had sent his people, the prophets Elijah, Elisha, and Jonah, before Amos' arrival on the scene, their messages uh, fell on deaf ears and the people did not listen. So they continued to be in their um, idolatry and their practicing of, of pagan worship. And so now God sends this prophet that nobody really knows about, this, this shepherd and fig gatherer from Tekoa, to speak on behalf of God to the nations of Judah and Israel concerning their judgment at the hands of the Lord. And the Lord allowed Amos to see behind this veil of prosperity in the nation of Israel. And he, and he shows Amos the hit that what's hidden behind uh, this veil of prosperity is that the nation um, was really in a uh, famine of sorts, religiously speaking, spiritually speaking. They were depraved of God. And so therefore he, he called them out of their neglect of God's word, of their idolatry and their pagan worship. He called them out for their greed and their corruption and leadership and oppression to the poor. And so Amos's ministry, it really only lasts a brief period of time, perhaps as long as two years at the most. Um, it wasn't like Isaiah or Jeremiah in that regard. Um, and it, it was just a short time prior to an earthquake that hits the region. And so, I know we're kind of going into a lot of the history of Amos right now this morning. Uh, it is important, though, as we continue through the coming weeks uh, to understand the book. But uh, if we were to outline Amos, really, it would be like this. Chapters 1 and 2 are the, about the prophecies of Amos. There's eight in total. Uh, chapters 3 through 6 are the sermons of Amos, and there's three of those. And then chapters 5 through 9 are the visions of Amos, and we see five visions in total. So this is a good way of, of remembering the layout of the book as we make our way through it in the coming weeks. So this week we begin the prophecies of Amos, which are the prophecies of judgment. And so first we're going to see this morning as we study the, 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 the judgment of the surrounding nations. And so again, in verse 2 it says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead and threshing, with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Haziel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. 
I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. You read that, it kind of reminded me, I read through the, the um, <laughs> uh, Lord of the Rings books. It kind of reminds me of that. There's all these different sayings and these weird names of people. And you know, Haziel and Ben-Hadad and the gate bar of Damascus, valley of Avon, Beth Eden. Sounds like something that uh, J.R. Tolkien wrote up. Um, but there's a bunch of history for us. And so it's kind of hard in our modern culture to understand everything here. But to the people of the day that he was speaking to, they would have understood everything uh, right off the bat. Uh, but in verse 2, Amos mentions that the Lord roars. Again, he says this actually in chapter 3 and verse 8, that the Lord roars. And between these two uh, moments, in verses 1 and one, two, in chapter 3, verse 8, we have the prophecies mentioned concerning the judgment of the nations and how they will be held accountable for their actions. And so first here he dimensions Damascus, which was a, a Syrian capital. Damascus um, was ruled by a man named Haziel, who's mentioned in verse 4. He was their leader, or their king, their ruler. And the reason for their judgment is because they had attacked the area of Gilead. So again, we're going to kind of jump into geography, a little bit of history here. If you've read to the Old Testament, you may recall the significance of Gilead. You may have heard the name of, of that city before. Um, but after Moses passed away, uh, they were wandering through the desert, remember, and the generation of Moses was not allowed to enter into uh, the Promised Land, Canaan. And so once that whole generation died off, uh, um, we have, um, excuse me, uh, Joshua takes over, and he's bringing them to the border of this promised land, and they're going to cross over to the Jordan, which was required to get into the promised land, and they're going to go take over this territory. Um, but there's a group um, of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh who decided, and they told Joshua they wanted to stay on the other side of the Jordan. They didn't want to enter into the promised land. And uh, because they had, they had a bunch of livestock and the land on that side of the Jordan was very good for livestock. And so when Joshua heard this, he was furious and he told them that they were about to make the same mistake as the generation before them. And so what these tribes decided to do was to fight along with the rest of the people, take over the land of Canaan, the promised land, and then cross back over to the other side of the Jordan and live on that side. And really what's so tragic about this is that they never entered into everything that God had for them, right? God had called the entire people to this wonderful land for them to, uh, to live in, but they were content to live on the other side. And interestingly, when you look at the history of what ended up happening, is that they were always the first ones attacked because they were separate from everybody else. They were on the outside of the city, and so they were always attacked first uh, when attacking armies came um, for, for Israel. Furthermore, they're also some of the first people to move into idolatry. And the people of Gilead are, are really an example of individuals who aren't willing to cross over into everything that God has for them. Right? You know, you think, I'll go to church, but let's not get crazy. You know, I'm not going to go on missions, or I'm not going to do this. I'll go to, church is good enough, right? You know, I don't have to do anything else. <laughs> don't, ask me, don't ask too much of me. Um, and so they really, they were content with where they were. They were happy with um, what they had, but they didn't understand that God had so much more for them. Just willing to settle for what they wanted, not what God had for them. They were content and they were motivated by their possessions. And, 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 the, and 
they're keeping them back from everything that God had for them. Another lesson that we can glean from the people of Gilead is the dangers of isolation. Uh, well, both physically here we see as they're attacked often, but on a spiritual level as well. These people secluded themselves, right? They cut themselves off from the rest of God's people. And we see that they are constantly attacked first. And we see that they're the first to withdraw from God and begin a life of idolatry. And so when we seclude ourselves, when we refuse the fullness of God's calling on our lives, we refuse the fullness of fellowship with God and his people, we become a much easier target for the enemy. And so what happened with Gilead is is they were attacked by Syria. And and scripture tells us that they actually threshed Gilead. This picture of a threshing uh, that were given by the Syrians was motivated by violence and greed. And they took control of the territory and the destruction was so severe and so brutal that Amos describes it as if they were taking a threshing tool that was used for farming and ran it over the people. Uh, And if you're not familiar with this, the oxen back in the day would pull these threshing sledges behind um, the grain and the sledges would have these heavy rocks and this sharp iron and it would um, essentially separate um, the grain from the chaff. And so what essentially the prophet is saying that Syria just came in and steamrolled Gilead. They completely wiped them out and decimated them. Uh, it was actually absolutely brutal what they did to these people. And so God says that the, the, the result of this cruelty to Gilead was that the capital of the Syrians, the city of Damascus, would be destroyed by fire and the people would be deported. And the prophecy given here by Amos came to pass 20 years later uh, when the Assyrians came, based on 2 Kings 18.9, it tells that they came and carried Assyria away to captivity. And so this was the judgment they received because they gave such cruelty against God's people. Next now we see is the, the judgment of the Philistines, in, beginning in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions for Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants of Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistine shall perish, says the Lord. Again, we got a bunch of those J.R.R. Tolkien words. Um, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gath. These were all cities that the Philistines dwelt in. Okay, So we have to understand these are Philistine territories. And if you've heard, you've likely heard of the Philistines, right? You know, uh, Goliath, pretty big guy um, in scripture and literally he was a big dude. Uh, he was a Philistine from Gath. And the Philistines were seafaring people, almost uh, like Vikings before the Vikings. Uh, and they, they came over to this land and they were major conquerors. They were mighty warriors and very brutal people and enemies of Israel for a long period of time. And their crime was taking entire communities of people and selling them into slavery, which in turn would cause these people who were sold into slavery to lose their identity as a people. You know, children, for example, in this, this area here would be taken from their families and sold into slavery. They'd be separated from their parents. They would lose their complete identity. Young women would be taken and put in harems, as it were, um, and become slaves to the highest bidder. Uh, bitter. So it really is very heart-wrenching what these people did. And it took place then, and sadly, it still takes place today. But we have to understand and believe that God is a God of grace, and I'm thankful for that, and he's a God of mercy, and he's a God of love, but you know what else? He's, he's also a God of justice, right? He's a God of justice, and, and he couldn't be all loving if he wasn't just, and if he wasn't right and righteous. And it says that God will, will judge these people who take advantage of, of others beneath them and sell them into differing forms of slavery. 
It's exactly what he does here with the Philistines. And what's so awful about this too, I, it, the, whole, the whole ordeal is, is just sickening to me. But what's so awful about these, selling these people into slavery is the fact that it's done for a profit. Right? To line their pockets with money. They're selling people, human beings, people made in the image of God. They're selling them just so that they can have a little bit more money in their pockets. Um, and we'll go into some more detail about this in the coming weeks, but some areas were selling people just for, for a pair of shoes, even. I mean, the price that they were putting on these people is just so sickening. I mean, there's no price worth anything for people, but what they were doing was awful, and it just came so naturally to a point that they're living and dwelling in the flesh so much that this was just a natural form of life for them. They completely disregarded the worth of human beings. And so the Lord pronounces judgment upon them right here. And he says that they will come in and destroy the Philistines to the point that even a remnant wouldn't remain of these people. So, in other words, he would completely wipe them out to the point where there would be no more Philistines ever on the earth. Do do any of you have Philistine blood? I don't think you do. Um, They're completely wiped out to this day. There's no one left in existence that was of Philistine blood. And so all this money, you think about all this money they accumulated through the selling of people, all, this, all these things that they possessed because they were doing such a thing, all that's gone too, right? All, they lost absolutely everything through this horrible thing that they were doing with people. Now next we see the, ju- the third judgment is pronounced on the city of Tyre, verses 9 and 10. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Now 200 miles north of Philistia is, where the, is this area of Tyre. In uh, 1 Kings 9, the king of Tyre actually became good friends with King Solomon. And so they agreed to this treaty. Uh, and, and King David, if you recall, uh, was not allowed to build the temple because his hands um, were covered in blood, as God said. He was a man of war. And so therefore, a man of peace, his son Solomon, would end up building the temple. And although David couldn't build the temple, it didn't stop him from gathering the materials and the resources needed to build this temple up uh, and to construct it. So David began this relationship with the king uh, named Hiram, of Tyre to obtain materials through trade. And so when King Solomon took the throne, that that relationship continued. Now it tells us that Solomon received his lumber from Tyre, and in turn, in return he gave him gold, and he even gave him some land. He gave him some cities uh, to the, this, this King Hiram of Tyre. But what we come to find out is that Tyre went back on their covenant with Israel, and like the Philistines, they also engaged in slave trade. They took entire communities captive and sold them into slavery for profit. And even worse than the Philistines, they, the Tyre, these people broke a covenant, a brotherhood, and sold these very people into slavery. These cities that they were given uh, by King Solomon, they, a lot of times they'd come in and take these people and sell them into slavery. These are people they made an agreement with, a brotherhood with, a pact with, um, could have been considered friends even. And they took advantage of them and sold them into slavery. And eventually it says that they would also be destroyed for their cruelty. And so this prophecy that's mentioned concerning the destruction of Tyre was uh, a first, the first portion of it was fulfilled by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed the mainland. Um, but Tyre also had this small island off of the coast, um, not too far off the coast, and they, would, they had this impenetrable fortress around it. They were well guarded, um, and so they, just, they abandoned their mainland um, camp and they all went off into this uh, fortified city, this little island, and uh, con- continued living there for some time uh, until someone that you might have heard of named Alexander the Great came along. Um, 
I'm a, I'm a fan of history. This is pretty amazing. But um, Alexander the Great conquered Tyre. Um, and so what he did in order to do this, to get across to this island, is he took all the remaining uh, rubble and all the broken construction from the mainland city and began to build a bridge. They had this, what's called a land bridge. It was about six feet deep um, that you could walk across if you were tall enough to get to this island. But obviously it's going to be hard going. So they began to put this rubble down and build this uh, bridge to walk across and to attack this city. I'm not going to go into all the details because it, um, there, there's a bunch of stuff that happened and some other agreements with other countries and stuff that helped bring them down. But nonetheless, um, after seven months, he conquered the city. And, and listen to the destruction that takes place here. 6,000 people were slain, 2,000 were crucified, and 30,000 people were sold into slavery by Alexander the Great. So just as they had done to God's people earlier, we see the retribution upon them later on. Very sad. Uh, next comes the pronounced judgment of who we talked about last week, the city, or the, the people of Edom, in verses 11 and 12. And this is really the point I want to hit on the most this morning. Thus says the Lord once more, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Now if you remember our message from last week, if you were here, the Edomites are descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, who are the descendants where Israel comes from, the nation of Israel. Teman and Basra are the two cities of Edom. Now, the message of Obadiah last week gave us a deeper study into the judgment of Edom and their sin against Israel, but part of their sin was due to their hatred of Israel. And perhaps this hatred goes all the way back between the two brothers, Jacob and Esau. You remember uh, the birthright stolen by Jacob from Esau uh, and the bitterness that ensued. And eventually, the two brothers met once more later in life and uh, for the most part patched up their relationship, although they never lived together again. Um, they... they they did kind of reconcile their disagreements. But once those two brothers passed away, uh, the people, their descendants, quickly drew apart from one another. The relationship between Israel and the Edomites was always on thin ice. And for one reason or another, this ice finally broke and Edom attacked their brothers to the north. And as scripture tells us, it says that Edom cast off all pity and it kept their wrath forever. And so this is really the point uh, of the message this morning that I want to touch on the most, is that what we see in Edom is the fruit of bitterness. Right? These are people that held on to their bitterness for a very long time. For generation after generation, they held on to this bitterness against the nation of Israel. And when the opportunity arose, they took advantage of Israel and unleashed their wrath upon them. Bitterness is an instrument of the enemy to tear at the seams of relationships. You know, think back to a time in your own life when you had bitterness in your heart towards someone. And I hope and pray you haven't, but I imagine most of us have had bitterness in our heart at some point towards somebody. Now, does that bitterness leave you feeling good about the situation? When you're holding these ill thoughts and ill will towards this person, you have this bitterness stirring in your heart, does it make you feel good <laughs> when you're thinking about it? Typically, it doesn't make you feel good. Does it strengthen the relationship between you two? No. See, when we're hurt by someone, either intentionally or unintentionally, we can really respond in one of two ways. Number one, we can either respond with forgiveness or we can respond with bitterness and resentment. 
And what we see of the example of Edom is the result of continuing to hold on to, bitter, to bitterness to the point that it became, like I said, generational. This was something that was just continued on. It was almost taught, like the lifeblood of the people, to, to hate the nation of Israel. Some of these people may have not understood fully why they hated them, but they were just taught to hate them nonetheless. As believers, uh, we are called not into an attitude of bitterness, but one of forgiveness. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable, because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single person great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespassed against us. We are offered forgiveness by no other terms. To refuse is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. C.S. Lewis always has a beautiful way of painting a picture, doesn't he? Um, you know, it's, it's, easy to, it's almost easier to forgive that person that they don't know very well that may have hurt you, right? But to forgive the, the continued, what does he call it, the incessant provocations of daily life, right? When you have a, a hurt relationship between someone and a, and a close relative or a good friend that just continues to just go downward um, just through abuse or through hurt or through pain, it's much harder for, to forgive that person than the one person who hurt you one time. But in other words, C.S. Lewis says that holding on to bitterness is not the correct response. And I believe that this whole quote by C.S. Lewis is summed up very well by Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, which says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It's really rather simple. We're called to, to forgive because we ourselves are forgiven, right? No one's without sin, right? Everyone is blemished. But it can be very difficult to forgive when we look down upon others and, and we deem that their sin is worse than ours and um, we kind of hold this lofty position over them. But that's not what God has called us to do. He's called us to forgive um, because we too have been forgiven. We have been given the ultimate grace by God and by Christ on the cross. But we tend to hold on to bitterness and resentment because, again, we deem ourselves better than the one we compare ourselves to. But in reality, we all need to be forgiven. The only one that actually has the right to be bitter is God himself, but he chooses love over bitterness every single time. It's pretty amazing. Um, author Paul Tripp says in regards to bitterness, harboring bitterness against people is actually confessing their sin to myself over and over again. Anger is akin to confessing their sin to God, dissatisfied that he hasn't done anything and placing myself in his position as judge. And I think he nails that right on the head too. And what he's saying is that when we harbor bitterness, we look at the sin of that person, and then we look to God and say, you aren't doing enough to take care of this, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands, right? We want to be the judge, we want to be the jury of this person, because we deem that what God is doing is not good enough for the hurt that they have caused. We want them to get what is coming, and that's where bitterness really comes into our hearts. But there's really, on the opposite spectrum of this, there's an incredible thing found in forgiveness, and I found in my own life personally, is it's, it's called freedom, Right? Freedom is found in forgiveness. The amazing thing about it, though, is that you find this freedom whether you're on the giving end of forgiveness or on the receiving end of forgiveness. You find this freedom in Christ. 
So whether you're, you're forgiving someone or you, you are being forgiven yourself, the response is always, in my, in my personal experience, so weightlifting and so humbling. And I find the response of Jesus on the cross to really be quite telling of what it means to be a Christ follower, what it means to be someone who forgives. And if you remember, he was hanging on the cross, right? And he was looking down at the very people who had nailed him to that cross, who had deemed him uh, to be crucified, that they called him a blasphemer and a liar. And as he was hanging on that cross, they were mocking him, they were spitting at him. Um, he was beaten to the point of he couldn't recognize who he was. And yet there was still no bitterness in his heart or no resentment towards these people, right? He, he says on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they not know what they are doing. Now for the second week in a row, I feel like there's a, really an incredibly important lesson for us to be, to, to be learned through the downfall of the Edomites. And so as we get to closing this morning, um, I challenge you guys to, to ask yourself if there's any bitterness in your heart towards another person. Perhaps you already know right off the bat that there is, or maybe it needs to be a little bit of soul searching. Um, you know, perhaps it's something recently or even somewhat trivial. Uh, maybe it's bitterness that's been raging for years. Bitterness is at the root of so many broken relationships. I know in, in my own family, not, not my direct family, but my, my surrounding family, my, my mother and father and uh, their families, there's, there's bitterness that's been raging for years and years. There's brokenness, there's hurt, and there's just what is deemed as ir irreconcilable differences between people that they either just refuse to make amends and to forgive um, or just waiting for the other person to forgive first, right? And sometimes we're kind of coming at that stalemate, you know, I'll forgive if they forgive. But that's not what God has called us to. He's called us to forgive regardless. And I just see that that anger, that, um, that resentment, that pain, that bitterness just continues to just eat away at, the, at these people at, at, and at their relationships especially, but also individually. Uh, it just eats at them. You know, you, you see in them a desire to reconcile the differences, but they just, for some reason or another, can't do it, whether it be out of pride or out of pain. They just cannot get themselves to forgive. And, and forgiving, it, it can be a process too, right? It's not just this immediate, especially if it's been over years, right? Just to not be this, like, oh, I forgive you, let's make amends and everything will be great. Amazingly, that can happen at times, but it does take time. It can be a day-by-day -day forgiving. You know, I forgive this person for what they did. I forgive this person for how they hurt me each and every day. You know, and I think of comments that are made oftentimes to a child, you know, comments like, you're just like your father, you're just like your mother, and it's said in a bitter tone, right? It's not a compliment. It's said in a terrible way. And uh, behind that sharp remark, though, is a heart full of bitterness and unforgiveness in that broken relationship, right? No, but sometimes, you know, <laughs> I get the same. I'm like my dad, and in some ways it's not terrible. It's said sarcastically or... <laughs> But it can be said very, very hurtfully at times, especially if the, if the relationship is broken, right? If there's a divorce or they're unmarried or there's just a bitterness that's dragged on between these parents and they say something like that, it's meant to bite at the, at the child. But the sad thing, though, is that bitterness oftentimes not only affects the relationship of the two, but it affects those that are also in the crossfire, right? And like, like I said in this example of the children, it can affect those children, too. They see this bitterness between two people and it affects them. Um, in, in a major way. But I believe that as, as believers, we're, we have to find a way to lay bitterness and resentment aside. 
Right? We have to find a way to do that. Ephesians 4.31, it, says to, it tells us to be put away from bitterness and resentment. And I can promise you guys, there's nothing good that is found in bitterness, nothing good found in unforgiveness and resentment. It's of the flesh. And remember, a couple weeks back we talked, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap the flesh. But I think this message this morning, especially this last, this last part right here, can be summed up nicely by Proverbs 10, verse 12. Very simple, but very wise. It says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And this is really what the difference between forgiveness and, and, and um, bitterness comes down to. Right? We can hold on to our anger, we can hold on to our bitterness, all these things. And that typically leads to what? It typically leads to gossiping. It typically leads to slander. It typically leads to broken relationships. Or we have the choice that through the love of Christ Jesus we can forgive. And again, this doesn't necessarily mean that this is going to magically heal the relationship overnight. But forgiveness is the incredible start of mending what was once broken. And you think about forgiveness and mending. Isn't that exactly what the cross did for us this morning, right? It it mended that which was broken, namely the relationship between man and God, which was broken from Genesis chapter 3 on, right? We broke that relationship with God. It It needed healing. It needed mending of some sort. And it came through forgiveness, in the response of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the reason it can be so hard to forgive, I've been in those places, right? It's so hard to just say the words, I'm sorry. It's almost like pulling teeth, right? You, you want to say it, but you can't. And I believe it really comes down to the battle that rages between the flesh and the spirit. We have to understand that forgiveness is not a worldly response, right? It's not a natural response for human beings. I find that forgiveness is a, really a Christ-like response, And so my prayer for any here this morning is that you would lay aside any bitterness that you have. Now, my prayer is that we would each seek our own hearts, ask God to reveal in our own hearts if there's any bitterness or anger uh, towards another person, and that we would be able to put that at the foot of the cross and take up forgiveness. Um, It's really what it comes down to. And and as, as believers, we're called to be an example, salt and light in this world, right? And it's very difficult to be salt and light if we are holding on to bitterness just as the world holds on to it, right? What's the difference between us and them? But if we can find ways to forgive and to love, it's an incredible thing. Bitterness leads to destruction and forgiveness leads to life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time, Lord. Um, I just want to just say a specific prayer for any of us that may hold resentment in our hearts, Lord, or any bitterness or anger towards another. And this may be something that's gone on for some time and maybe more recent, but whatever the time frame, Lord, I just pray that we would, you would give us the capacity to forgive and that we would just see the world through your eyes, see ourselves through your eyes and, and understand that you too have forgiven us of something so, so terrible, Father. And Lord, that we'd be able to, to spread this forgiveness to those around us, Father, that they would see you revealed in the midst of it as well, Father. Lord, bitterness and resentment and pain, these, these things bring so much pain, so much destruction that can last for generations, Father. And I just pray that we can break those generational um, chains today, Lord, if, if there's any here. That we can 
forgive. And whether or not they accept that forgiveness, that we be able to, to feel that and understand that freedom that is found in forgiveness, Father. And that we just continue to pray for those who have hurt us as well. Lord, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the example you, you displayed of forgiveness. But I also thank you for the gift that came from that sacrifice, Lord. That you had mended what was broken between ourselves and God. And that you had made it, um, that you had repaired it once more. And so we just thank you for that this morning. And I just pray for this week, Lord, that you give us opportunities um, just to, to be salt and light in this world. Opportunities to forgive. And... Um, and uh, Lord, I just, I just thank you for your word and that we can glean knowledge and wisdom from it today. In your name we pray. Amen.